next four weeks, we're going to be looking at what this church is about and our part to play in that vision. Since we've moved into this new building we're in now, it's been great to see so many new people come and partner with us. We've been presented with some great opportunities in our community, in Edinburgh, and indeed beyond these borders. But a danger is, is that it can become very easy for us to buy into a numbers game, to think we're doing well because we're filling out this building. It can become very easy for us to just get settled and think we've made it as a church. We've made it. So we thought it would be good for us to take this opportunity now to work through our vision to keep us focused on why it is that we are here, on why Charlotte Chapel exists. So whether you've been attending here for two months or 20 years, it's good to remind ourselves why we're here and the role that we play in seeking to glorify God as part of his people. So what is the vision of our church? It is to love, grow, serve, and go. Love, grow, serve, go. We want to be a church that loves God. We want to be a church that grows in Christ-likeness. We want to be a church that serves Christ's church. And we want to be a church that go and make disciples. Love, grow, serve, go. Now there's one thing that's important to remember. That love, grow, serve, go is not a pathway or a process. It's not like that we need to love God, be grown in Christ-likeness, serve in Christ's church before we go and make disciples. No. We love God, we grow in Christ-likeness, we serve Christ's church as we go and make disciples. As followers of Jesus, as his disciples, we are called to love, grow, serve, and go all at the same time. So to begin our series... We're not going to start with love, as you might expect, but rather we're going to begin with go. Go and make disciples because we love God, grow in Christ's likeness, serve Christ's church as we go and make disciples. So why don't you grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, just pop your hand up and one of our stewards will come down and bring a Bible to you. We're going to go to Luke chapter 24 beginning at verse 44, and you'll find that on page 1062 of the church Bible, 1062. As you're turning to Luke 24 now, how about we quickly pray? Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have, you have spoken to us and revealed yourself to us through your word. Father, we as humans, we err, Father, but your word never errs. So we ask that tonight, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be working us as we come to mind the depths of your word, to see the truth that's in it and apply it to our lives. Would you help us tonight, Father, to see what it is we need to see and what we should be applying to our lives as we go out to glorify you with our lives. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. So Luke chapter 24. Before we read it, I first want to give us some context of where we're going here because we're joining the scene halfway through the scene, Okay. So let's see what's happened before. So Luke 23, Jesus has died. Jesus was crucified on the cross. 
His disciples watched this happen from a distance. Jesus was embodied in a tomb. His disciples knew this happened. At the end of Luke chapter 23, the disciples are thinking, that's it, game over. Christianity is over before it's even begun. But then Luke 24 starts. And on the first day of the week, the third day after Jesus died, some women, Mary, Mary, Joanna, visit the tomb and they find the tomb to be empty. An angel appears to them and says, the reason the tomb is empty is because Jesus is not here. He has risen from the dead. Well, the women rush back to tell the other followers of Jesus what's happened. Peter, one of the 12, runs to the tomb. It's empty. A bit later on, a couple of followers of Jesus are walking on the road to Emmaus. Suddenly, this gentleman starts to walk with them. They eventually get to their house, they bake some bread, and suddenly they realize this gentleman is Jesus before them in the flesh. Then they quickly go back to the disciples, tell them what's happened, and it turns out Jesus has also appeared to Peter. Everyone is gathered together in one room going, what is going on here? What is happening? And then right in the middle of that room, Jesus Christ appears right in front of them. Well, you can imagine the reaction of the people in that room. Startled, frightened, thinking they have seen a ghost. Jesus then encourages them, says, no, I'm not a ghost. Look at my hands, look at my feet, come and touch me. He then eats a broiled fish right in front of them just to prove that he is real, to prove that he is the risen Lord Jesus. So in this room, we've got a real mixture of all sorts of emotions going on here. The disciples are confused, yet amazed, filled with joy, yet still unbelief. So let's listen to what the risen Lord Jesus says to his joyful, yet confused disciples. Let's go to Luke 24, and we'll start to read at verse 44. He, that is Jesus, said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Amen. This is God's word. Well, here we see Jesus meet the confusion of the room by taking them to the scriptures unfolding to them the events that have just happened and unfolding to them the events that will happen. Okay, here's where we're going tonight. Here's some three pointers to keep you on track tonight. First of all, we're going to look at what has happened, verse 44 to 46, what has happened. Then we're going to look at what will happen, verse 47, what will happen. And finally, how this will happen. Verse 48 to 49. What has happened, what will happen, how this will happen. 
First of all, what has happened? Verse 44 to 46. Well, first of all, Jesus has risen from the dead. And the disciples, naturally confused and a bit emotional, they watched him die on a cross. They watched him die that horrific, humiliating death on that cross. They buried him in a tomb and rolled a massive stone across over it. And now here he is, before their very eyes, eating a fish. So what does Jesus do? He takes them back to scriptures. He grounds their recent events in scriptures. Look with me at verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is saying here that the recent events, his death, his resurrection, were prophesied in the scriptures. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, of what we now call today as the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. These events were prophesied at least a thousand years ago. And Jesus is reassuring his disciples that everything that's happened was meant to happen. This was all part of the plan. And as you start to look over the Old Testament, it all starts to make sense. When you look at the law of Moses, when you're looking at the sacrificial animals, the animals that were killed, their blood spilled to effect an external ceremonial cleansing for the people. This is no more seen than in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. Okay, in Exodus 12, there's a lamb sacrificed. It was a male lamb. Without defect, was sacrificed. Without breaking any bones. Its blood was painted around the front door of the house. So when the angel of death came over the house, it passed over the house. Sparing the life of the family's firstborn. Jesus is this ultimate lamb. A male without defect, sacrificed on the cross, without breaking a single bone. And by the shedding of his blood, our lives may be spared by having faith in his blood that now brings life. What about the prophets? Well, if you're with us this morning, we're looking at Isaiah 53 in the morning service, and that is all about Jesus. The suffering servant who took up our pain bore our suffering, who took our punishment, exactly what Jesus did upon that cross. The Psalms, Psalm 22 is a great one to go to, describes someone dying on a cross long before crucifixion was even invented. It even describes the soldiers gambling to gain Jesus' clothes. Psalm 22 says this, they pierce my hands and my feet all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. This was written long before crucifixion was even a thing. Psalm 16 talks about how God will not let his holy one see decay, a reference to Jesus' resurrection. Now, there are many, many, many more examples of how the Old Testament all point to Jesus, point to his death and his resurrection. And Jesus is saying here to his disciples, look, all that has happened is in order to fulfill what scripture said would happen. And look, I am standing here before you now as physical evidence that these scriptures have been fulfilled 
that these scriptures are true. You're seeing this with your very own eyes. And in verse 45, the penny begins to drop. The disciples finally get this. Everything that's in the Old Testament has been pointing towards what has just happened. Pointing towards Jesus. And Jesus sums up, sums up for us in verse 46. Come with me to verse 46. But he says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Messiah will suffer, check, happened. Rose from, the third day, rose from dead on the third day, check, this happens. Jesus in this passage is saying to his disciples, look at the scriptures. Exactly what's predicted has happened. Look at me. It's true. You can see this with your own eyes. Now maybe you're here tonight and you would not call yourself a Christian. Maybe you do not believe that Jesus did die, that Jesus was raised back from the dead three days later. Maybe you're here tonight and you're exploring the claims of Christianity, the claims of Jesus, then it's great that you're here. I'm so happy you are with us tonight. But can I ask you a question? Have you ever looked into the resurrection for yourself? Have you ever explored the evidence for yourself? It sounds hard to believe, doesn't it? A man would die and yet raised back to life three days later and is still alive today. That is hard to believe. But have you looked into it? The evidence we have for the resurrection. Because if you haven't, can I encourage you to do so? Because Christianity stands or falls on the claims of Jesus. If Jesus never lived, then Christianity is destroyed. If Jesus never died on a cross, then Christianity is destroyed. If Jesus never rose from the dead, then Christianity is destroyed. And we as Christians should be pitied. But if Jesus did live, if Jesus did die on the cross, if Jesus did rise from the dead three days later, then suddenly that changes everything. Suddenly the words of the risen Lord Jesus are words to be listened to. The words of the Bible are to be believed. And that will have a massive implication on your life. So explore it for yourself. Before you discount it as some sort of fairy tale, look at the evidence. Begin by reading Luke 23, Luke 24. If that is all you do for the rest of this sermon, I'm happy, okay? You have my permission to just read Luke 23, Luke 24, and stop listening to me, okay? You can do that. If not, ask whoever brought you tonight what they believe and why they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because in this passage, Jesus is saying, the Messiah has suffered, he has risen from the day, and the disciples can see us with their own eyes. That is what has happened. Now Jesus turns his disciples' attention onto what will happen. Verse 47. Come with me to verse 47. Okay, Messiah will suffer, rise on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What Jesus is telling his disciples here is that a message is going to be proclaimed in his name to all the nations starting in Jerusalem. A message will be proclaimed in his name 
starting at Jerusalem. What's this message? The message is a call to repentance. Repentance means turning away from something and turning towards something else. Charles Spurgeon, um, who's a, a dead Baptist minister from many years ago, uh, said this, Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes a man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Spurgeon saying here, repentance is a recognition that we are sinners and having this awareness of our need to be saved from our sins. Repentance is when you go from loving your sin to hating it. And we go from hating God to loving him. That's what repentance is. What is offered? Forgiveness of sins. See, as we turn away from our sin and turn to God in repentance, God graciously forgives our sins. He takes our sins far away from us so that we can stand before him, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We are made right with God and we can now enjoy our relationship with God. So this message is a call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's the gospel. What authority is given to this message? How can we trust this message? Well, in whose name is this message to be preached? The Messiah's name. Who's the Messiah? The one who suffered and rose from the dead. Who was that? The risen Lord Jesus. This message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. And we see that happening through Acts. Baptisms, healings, forgiveness, proclaim of the gospel, all done in the name of Jesus. Who is this message for? This message is for all the nations. Not just the Jews, who were God's chosen people in the Old Testament, but for the entire world. Jews and Gentiles, that means everyone else. To all the nations, this message is to be spread. And it starts in Jerusalem. That is what will happen. But how will this happen? Okay, so what has happened? Jesus died, raised from the dead. What will happen? A message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be spread to all the nations, starting in Jerusalem. How is this going to happen? And here we go, we're getting to the crux now. A better question to ask, who will proclaim this message? Well, look with me at verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. When Jesus says you here, he's speaking to everyone in that room. Who's in the room? The disciples, the chosen 11, and those who are with him. Everyone in that room, Jesus is calling as witnesses of these things. You see, it's not just the chosen few who are called to proclaim this message. No, it is all the followers of Jesus who are to proclaim this gospel. They are witnesses to what has happened. They are witnesses to the scriptures being fulfilled. They are witnesses to Jesus' death on the cross. They are witnesses to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So who better 
Ezra to go out there and tell people about Jesus? Or to put it another way, who else is there to tell people about Jesus? There is no one else. There is just this band of followers sitting in this room watching Jesus eating a fish. That's all there is. They are all called to go out there with the gospel, with this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You are witnesses of these things, so now go and tell people about it. Did you spot how Luke chapter 24 begins? Come with me to Luke 24. Go back to verse 1. So end of 23, we see Jesus buried in a tomb. You'd expect Luke to now say, and on the third day, blah, blah, blah. What does he actually say here? 24 verse 1, on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. You see, Luke ends his gospel. Luke ends his book at a beginning. A new start, the beginning of a new week. You see, the earthly ministry of Jesus is drawn to an end. But the disciples' ministry of proclaiming this message is just beginning. We are now entering a new age. If the Old Testament all points towards Jesus dying on the cross, then Jesus' earthly ministry is Jesus going to that cross, dying, then rising again on the third day. Now we begin to enter a new age of this message of what's happened to Jesus, of the gospel being proclaimed to all the ends of the earth. Luke ends at the beginning. And that is exactly what we see happening throughout the book of Acts. The gospel is proclaimed in Jerusalem. It spreads to Judea, <clears throat> then Samaria, before finally reaching as far as Rome. And it's continued to spread. It's gone past Rome. And the entire history of the past 2,000 years has been this gospel spreading to all the nations. And that is where we come in tonight. You see, this message began at Jerusalem. It went to Judea, spread to Samaria, went to what we call Turkey today, went to Rome, came to Europe, went to Britain, came to Scotland, came to Edinburgh came to us. If that had not happened, none of us would be sitting here tonight. We are witnesses of these things. Sitting here tonight, we are witnesses that this message has been proclaimed to the Gospels, but the work is not yet done. The work is not yet complete. Otherwise, Jesus would have returned, and I'm pretty sure he hasn't returned just yet. We still live in this age of proclamation. We still live in an age of telling people about Jesus. We still live in the age of the gospel being spread to all the nations. Right now, there are about 6,789 unreached people groups in this world. That means they haven't heard the gospel. 4.2 billion people. Massive number, isn't it? Let's break this down a bit more. 
Right now, there are 3,015 unengaged, unreached people groups. That means there's no recognized outreach program towards these people groups. 194 million people. Still too big. Okay, right now, there is, as of 2011, there was 495,360 people living in Edinburgh. Let's say, according to recent research, 17% are Christians. Personally, I think that's very high, but let's say for now. That means right now, there is 411,000 people on our doorstep who do not know Christ. 411,000 people. This very moment, there are people walking past our door who do have never heard the gospel. We no longer live in a Bible literate society. There are people literally lost in darkness just beyond that door. That's a big number. Okay, look around you at the empty seats in front of us. Pick one of these empty seats. Who would you love to see sitting in that seat? Who do you know who's not a Christian that you would love to be sitting here with you in that seat? Now I should have the question, who is going to tell them about Jesus? Who is going to proclaim this message of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins to them? Who did Jesus send? The ones in the room. The ones who witnessed his resurrection. The ones who had their minds open so they could understand scriptures. The ones whose life had been transformed by the risen Lord Jesus. The ones who are his disciples. Who are his disciples today? The ones who believe that Jesus did die and did rise from the dead. The one of us who believe that the scriptures are true those of us who our lives have been transformed by the risen Lord Jesus. We are his disciples if you believe these things. You are called to proclaim this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If we are the ones who have experienced this life-giving, shame-smashing, redeeming, liberating power of the gospel, who better to tell people about the gospel? Or put it another way, who else is going to tell people about Jesus. There is no one else. Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, is calling us to go and proclaim the gospel to a lost, dark world. And if you think that sounds a bit tough, a bit beyond our means, then you're absolutely right. <laughs> None of us could do this on our own. Not one of us. But that's why Jesus doesn't stop there. Come with me now to verse 49. I am going to send what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. 
You see, the disciples are not called to proclaim this message by themselves. Now, they are going to need some help. And Jesus is going to send them the help just as his father had promised. They're going to be clothed with power from on high. They're going to be clothed with the Holy Spirit. We see Jesus repeat this promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then we see the disciples receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And what happens just after they receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2? Peter stands up and starts to proclaim the gospel. And so it begins. The proclamation of this message of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, proclaiming the Bible or, the, or Jesus' words is not just enough in and of itself. We also need the Holy Spirit to be powerfully at work as we do so. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. There's power behind these words. This task cannot be carried out by human strength. No, we need God's intimate indwelling presence. And guess what? If you have repented of your sin, if you have received that forgiveness for our sins, then you have also been clothed with power from on high. You also have the Holy Spirit. We are equipped to go and make disciples. We have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. The two essential ingredients we need to go out there with the gospel. Think back to your friend, your family member, whoever it was you wanted to sit in that seat. Who's going to tell them about Jesus? Who's going to tell them about this message of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Someone who has the word of God and has the Holy Spirit. Someone who is a disciple of Jesus. That describes us, doesn't it? That describes you if you're a follower of Christ. You can tell this person about Jesus. You can go and make disciples. The risen Lord Jesus is calling us to go and proclaim this message to all the nations and to go with the Holy Spirit. We are called as a church to go and make disciples of all nations. Is that a scary thought? Is that a scary thought to go out there by yourself? Would you want the good news? Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, we've also got each other. Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. <laughs> We're not called to do this by ourselves. Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, which is fantastic and amazing and what we need, we've also got each other as well. Let's pray together as a church. Let's help each other out as we seek to make Christ known to the nations. We can work through each other's testimony. We can watch for each other, say the gospel to one another and to hone it down. Can you say the gospel in 60 seconds? We'll find someone, get a friend, a Christian friend, and practice together. Pray for these people 
together and pray that we would have compassion that God has for the lost, that we will be stirred up to go as a church, as Charlotte Chapel, to make disciples of all nations as we love him, as we grow in Christ's likeness, and as we serve Christ's church. Now, in a few moments, we're going to respond to God's word by looking at more how practically we can go and make disciples. But for now, let's pray.